name's Eileen Townsend, and I'm the editor of the Northern Logger and Timber Processor, a trade magazine for the forest products industry that's based out of the Adirondack Mountains in New York State. Hi there, everybody. Thanks again for turning to the Northern Logger podcast for all your important news and interesting stories from the forest products industry. So in this episode, we have two different stories for you. First, we're going to hear what it's like for those loggers who are just about the only professionals harvesting and processing timber in the area that they live. These folks are the people that work in the smallest northeastern states. We're talking Rhode Island, New Jersey, Delaware, who frequently go about their business without a lot of other loggers or industry infrastructure in the area. So on this episode, we're going to hear how they make a go of it. And after that, we're going to hear results from the Maine Logger Health and Safety Study, which has focused on understanding the health and safety concerns of loggers in Maine, something that hasn't been studied enough. So stay tuned. We've got those stories coming up for you. Colin McLaughlin sat down to tell me what it's like to harvest the cedar swamps of southern New Jersey without any other logger around operating at the scale that he is. I was a union iron worker. Me and my wife had three kids, and I was a union iron worker, worked in Philly and in Manhattan. And one day I just got so fed up with the traveling and the craziness, so I quit. Everybody thought I was nuts. (laughs) So they said, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to go work out in the woods. So I started, um, we started off doing forestry melon. And then the forestry melon led us to realize that, you know, there's a good amount of timber in New Jersey. And then we started buying logging equipment and started logging. I'll tell you, if there's one good group it's loggers. They really help you out. I mean, I have friends from Ontario, Quebec, all over New Brunswick, uh, people out on the West Coast that were really helpful. I mean, just incredible. I was shocked. You would think that most people would be like, no, no, no. But every one of them, any way possible, they could help. They would help. And what are the forests like down there? Uh, All different. I mainly cut at um, cedar swamps here. Oh, okay. That's our big thing is the cedar swamps. A lot of people don't realize it, but there is a lot of timber in New Jersey. So you're cutting with a just a chainsaw in the and are you like no literally cut the length near or close to, in the water? Uh, we're it's it's a swamp. There's I mean the trees grow on top of the swamp, so. You got to build roadway and everything to get across it, and it's interesting. Yeah, definitely. So the there's that show like Swamp Loggers. Are you doing anything yeah. like what they're doing? Kind of, sort of like that. We, you know, they use um, regular conventional machinery, but we found it it's a lot it's a lot better to do cut the length. We spoke with some people that cut a big cedar swamp down in North Carolina and they found the best way to do it was cut the length so we gave it a shot and it worked so what kind of CTL setup do you have uh we have a John Deere 703 with a log max head on it and a timberjack 1110 
how does the work correspond to the season? I mean, do you all have like a mud season where you can't get in there? Or Yeah, there's no season. It never freezes because the water's moving under it too much. And then what's uh, your market for the cedar? It goes down to North Carolina. That that was probably the biggest obstacle was uh, there's no markets here. So we met up with a mill down there. They were interested in purchasing it, but the trucking was the trucking was such a hurdle to try and find trucks that could use a backhaul to run down to there. So it took us years, but now we have real good couple truckers that we use, and um, it works out. It works out good enough that we just actually bought a property that was a sawmill back in the 70s, 80s, and we're actually going to put a sawmill back in it, upgrade it, and put a band sawmill in and start cutting our own lumber. Are you involved at any kind of, you know, organizational level with other loggers in the, in the state of New Jersey? Nobody here. It's mainly land clearing guys that when they get slow, they do some logging. You know, they'll go cut something if they get slow. So Right. And, and do you have employees? Yes. So how do you deal Four. with uh, workman's comp and things like that? It's horrifying. <laughs> what are your rates down there? It is uh, 56 for each hundred. And the toughest part is I've been trying to get them to switch make a mechanized logging category because we don't use chainsaws. Right, right. I mean, it, we use machines. There's nothing big enough that you can't cut with the machine. Right. Um, and they just, we're actually battling with them right now again because we just had it with, you know, if they did a mechanized logging category, then it would be a lot nicer. Do you have problems with basically being, a, you know, having an industrial operation in an area that is not as uh, adapted to industry? That's probably the biggest hurdle is there's, you know, a lot of people think, oh, it's, it's, there's just no loggers. Well, there's so many things beyond the logger. Right. It's not just the sawmill. It's, you know, trucking. It's, you know, nobody has log trucks. Nobody has log trailers. Nobody has self-loaders. There's just, everybody thinks you snap your fingers, you put in a sawmill and everything's great. Well, not really, because now that the the people that are a vital part of the whole thing, now you have to find them or you have to buy so much. That's why everybody's like, oh, yeah, when, why isn't your mill open yet? And I, my biggest thing is baby steps and pay for everything as you go, because if you rush into everything, you got to get a bunch of loans and you can get in a lot of trouble really quick. Definitely. Some people bite off more than they can chew. Yeah. And then you're, you're, you're forced to do things and sell a product for, for nothing. And you don't need to. How have you been able to relate to the public? Is that something that enters into your work? I mean, back in the, up to the seventies and eighties, I mean, everybody logged and cut wood and, you know, they did firewood and everything else. But what happened was as cars got more efficient, 
people moved further away from the cities to raise their kids. And then they moved out into the woods and they try to impose, you know, this belief that you shouldn't cut trees. And as long as you don't hop out of the machine and start hooting and hollering, what are you doing here? 99% of the people, if you just explain to them that everything has a life cycle, what we're doing is good. They walk away. You just got to, it's education more than anything. Um, most of them are, are fine with it. I mean, you're going to have 1% that no matter what you say, you could hand them a bag of hundred dollar bills. They're still going to complain. It doesn't matter. You can't fix them people. Um, if you don't get out and act like, you know, a complete moron and start cussing at people, you just take a couple minutes to talk to them. It, it's, it works out. I mean, is it an inconvenience? But yeah, but still, you need to do it. Can you tell me just a little bit more about, like, I'm sure knowing uh, loggers that are in other areas of the country, uh, you know, how, how does it compare to be where you are to, say, being in Maine or being in Oregon or being in one of these states where there's a much larger industry? It's kind of, it's, it's weird because, you know, it, it, there's, how do you put it? It's so cool when you go somewhere and you see log trucks and you see guys logging and everything else, because it's like one of these days, you know, it, you know, drive through Pennsylvania or New York state, you're, you're, you're paying some log trucks all the time. You're not doing that in New Jersey. <laughs> yeah. And another thing is that like mechanics and everything else, it's all stuff that you know you need to have in place, but we just don't have it. I mean, ninety-five percent of the time, I'll fly somebody in, but to fix something, just because by the time somebody around here tries to figure it out, you're you're in trouble already. You know, everybody says it must be nice. You know, oh, you know, it must be nice. But I don't think it is. I don't know. It's not like I get more money to do it. It's not like I wouldn't want camaraderie here, whereas, hey, look, uh, you know, something just went wrong. I mean, I don't think that there is a bonus to it. I really don't. And you know what? When that 1% comes out to argue with you at meetings, it would be nice to have other people standing behind you saying, look, you're wrong, but there's nobody behind us. You know, so... I, I don't think that there is really a benefit. It's nice to have people to have your back or to, hey, can you give me a hand? I got this job. It's got to be done. We got to cut so many board feet off. There is nothing here. What would happen if it truly became impossible for loggers to operate in New Jersey? I guess I'd have to go back to iron working, huh? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> now, I don't think because I, I think we're finally at a time in this country where people realize that, you know what, um, we need to start doing something with these forests, the big fires we're having, the, all the, you know, invasive bugs killing everything. I, I think we're at a turning point now, whereas I, I, I just, for once, I really truly do believe that people are going to realize that, you know what, in the seventies, the forest was so much nicer than it is now. And what happened? Well, you threw the logger out. 
Cool. All right, great. Well, I, I will just talk to you soon, and uh, thanks for doing the interview this afternoon, and uh, we'll keep in touch. All right, thank you. Have a All good right. night. Thanks, Colin. You too. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Bob Thurber lives on Jeremoth Hill, the highest point in the state of Rhode Island. It was named for Jeremoth Brown, a progenitor of the Brown family who went on to found Brown University. And Brown's body is buried in a small historic cemetery on Thurber's land. Thurber works on quite a few very historic tracts of land, and his corner of Rhode Island is dotted with farmhouses that have been standing since the 1700s and 1800s. Thurber has lived in that region all of his life, along with his longtime partner Martha and their son Eric. But it's getting harder and harder to log there. He sat down to tell us how he's made logging work in his area. Starting from the beginning, I mean, I... I went to Paul Smith's College up in uh, the Adirondacks of New York and took the then two-year forest technician program. Uh, loved being in the woods, and you know I had been cutting firewood since I was like 12 years old uh, for for a local firewood producer, and uh, wanted to take it to the next level. And, and uh, once I graduated high school, and you know get a little more more knowledge under my belt so went, went and took the took the technical program and and when I got out of school I I worked for a land surveyor because I couldn't find a job at a you know at a sawmill or for as, as a forester and uh, which is what I was kind of looking at so I uh, spent about a year working for a surveyor which which was a really good step that taught me a lot about records research and boundaries delineation and and um which you know, we, we we do a lot of working working with the land so um and then came along an opportunity to work as a procurement forester for for a sawmill in in connecticut so uh took the job worked there for about four years uh in uh in the late 80s and there were some there were some market challenges at the time and the sawmill was going through a tough period where they were downsizing and didn't need you know as many foresters timber buyers so i was kind of squeezed out and uh it forced me into the logging workforce at that point so in 1990 i went from a for, from a forester to a, to a logger, and have, having watched uh, ten or twelve crews that I had working with me at the mill, I got to see different you know different methods, different systems, forwarders, skidders, uh, grapple skidders, and you know just how how guys. Uh, produced wood, and I got to see, you know, kind of track their production, and you know, I, I learned a lot. So when I when I went to the woods, I had, you know, I had a lot of ideas and not a lot of money. Uh, and so you know, I I was fortunate enough to to buy a, a small John Deere skidder and and got started, and and from then on we had we had some really good years it was it was always a challenge getting started was was tough um but there there were a lot more mills around back then um i think the other day i counted 
about 14 mills that were in this Rhode Island, eastern Connecticut area that no longer exists, either from either from just, you know, people, you know, had passed away, you know, small mom and mom and pop kind of mills to larger mills that uh, that just went out of business. Um, so, and they can, all, a lot of those mills have their own contract logging crews, uh, they buy their own timber, so... Um, what used to be, you know, an insatiable appetite for wood around here be, has become something where I, I have a hard time selling wood locally. And it, it, so, so, well, I still, I still market, you know, my, my tree length firewood and pulp wood, which isn't, is now goes into mulch, not so much pulp, but, uh, most of the saw logs end up in Maine. Um, I, I haven't sold any wood into Canada now for a couple of years. The trucking has been a real challenge since the inception of the e-log system. Um, so, so we're we're moving more wood to Maine, you know, than than before. Uh, and I I I like that. Um, I'm keeping more of my product in the domestic market instead of exporting it to Canada. I'd rather rather support our own economy and but when it comes down to survival you gotta you gotta move the wood where it where it will go. So recently been able to open I as a result of the connections I made at the logging show up in Bangor, uh just a few weeks ago I, I talked with some mills and Got some really uh, good interest in some some hardwood, some dead oak in particular down this way that I'm having I'm having a yeah I'm having a really hard time selling the dead oak down here. Um, I, I don't know if it's because that the mills that saw oak down here primarily export it to China. Um, whereas the mills in northern New England use it more domestically, um, you know, whereas like in the the flooring market, sawing actual solid wood flooring versus selling lumber to China, where they then slice that board into several sheets of veneer that they laminate uh, to you know, uh, a manufactured uh, base, so uh, makes a difference. So um, I'm really, I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm excited about creating uh, some new relationships you know, up in northern New England because uh, walking away from the dead oak right now is something that I just can't do. There's too much of it. There's, there's, there's timber that I've been thinning uh, over the last. 29 years uh, that it's just too good to let go. It's not firewood. It's too big for firewood. It's beautiful lumber quality timber uh, that I'm hoping to see hit the market before it is, you know, full of wormholes and stain and rot, you know, ensues. So uh, we're, we got a short window of opportunity and I'm trying to do as much as I can with the, uh, the resources I have, but it's been a it's been a real challenge over the last 
last year or so, and uh, to the point where I can't sell it locally at, at all. Hmm. So, uh, so, um, so, yeah. so you know, uh, some of the stuff I'm curious about is, well, I guess let's talk about Rhode Island specifically. You know, when we were in Washington, you know, I know you were speaking about how the the way that you can get people's attention is to say, you know, I manage your water resource essentially. Um, but you know, how how uh, does the actual land base in a state like Rhode Island differ from um, you know maybe a larger state? Well, I think you know from number one from the landowner's perspective. So the average size parcel of land, wooded land in Rhode Island is is around ten acres. I I, I believe it's a right it's you know, it's uh it's someone's backyard. It's not like like two hundred acres, let's say. Uh you know, when you have when you have a house on ten or twenty acres of land the landowners are very, uh, very concerned about the aesthetics of their property. They're very intimate with their property. They know every stone and stump and corner and tree and and uh, you know the, the 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 timber revenue is not a high priority for for landowners. It's forest health, wildlife, uh, yeah, water quality protection is is something that we all um, appreciate, um, you know, and, and you, you need to continue to cut trees, especially over the last, you know, with the defoliations we've had with the gypsy moth, people are, people are seeing it and, uh, not just in the woods, but around their houses. And so there's this, we're in this, uh, you know, this place where people kind of live in the woods, so to speak, even though it's an urban environment, it's a wooded urban environment. And, uh, I mean, the tree companies are, are just going full tilt right now, um, doing very well, and you know, in that, that sector of business. And, um, but, you know, I'm, I'm still trying to pay people for their timber and not charge them to cut their timber. And, uh, that's getting more, that's getting more and more difficult. It's, it's getting to the point where, well, we can come in and, salvage a timber maybe for the timber or maybe for a slight cost uh, the cost of moving the machines in that you know that i need in order to do the project costs it costs money and the, the timber the, the lumber is not worth what it was uh so it's 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 challenging and um there are parcels of land that i've had under contract to to cut timber that um that had, uh, you know, primarily pine. It was a pine thinning, but the landowner lost all of their hardwood, all of their oak, so it changed the the management, uh, you know, objectives, the, the plan. Everything's kind of out the window because if if we go in and we cut the pine as prescribed, the forest is going to be so understocked, you know, with the with that, with all the dead oak that well, we can't cut the pine now. Because you know we got to deal with the oak first, and uh, it, it's just been a it's been a real challenge. And there's only so much wood that you can dump into the firewood market. Uh, so um, 
yeah, my production is off, so revenue is off, and I'm, 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 I'm trying to survive in a situation where the forest hasn't. Right. Well, a couple follow-up questions to what you were talking about with the, you know, 10 acres, 20 acres. So, you know, how has that uh, affected your, um, you know, your methods of harvesting, the way you invest in your well, business, that sort of thing? Well, I mean, I, most of the equipment I've got, I've got, you know, several pieces of equipment, small, medium, large skitters, uh, rubber tire telebuncher, um, dangle head processor, uh, and I use them on a lot of projects, small and large, because of the, the space that you have to work with your landing. Um, bringing in the processor enables me to sort and stack several products versus just pulling it into one pile with a skitter. And so, uh, I mean, the, the operational costs of moving in on small parcels is high. So and even though there might be some, some nice timber there, especially now that it's dead, the, the costs exceed the revenue. So I, you know, so it, it's tough. It's a, it, it's become a tough sell. Some people are, you know, on the fence as to what to do. Um, and I'm on the fence as to whether or not I can do anything for them because I don't know if I can sell the timber. So, but I've, I've always worked small parcels. Um, a lot of times, you know, you, you, you move in on one small job and you're in this neighborhood and people you know, obviously see what you're doing and then and you kind of, you move down the road. Um, I had one, in, I had one instance just a few miles from my house here, 25 years ago, I moved in on a five acre woodlot and I caught 10,000 board feet of red oak off that, that five acres. I did twenty. I did twenty-four other woodlots on that road as a result of that first five acres. And I and I recently went back to that same lot two years ago, and I caught thirty thousand board feet of red oak off that same lot because it's now going to be a house lot, and the timber needed to be cut. So things blossom, you know, if uh, if you do a nice job and you have good utilization and. You know, you leave some 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 nice timber behind. People like to see big trees, not just small trees. So you can't just go in and do diameter limit cutting, in, in my opinion, and have people respect the work that you do. You've got to leave some, you know, some really magnificent trees to show that hey, he's not just uh, you know a, a lumber baron. He's not, you know, he, boy, he's really, uh, you know. You got to show some conservative, some conservatism, and and uh, and that and that has appealed to people over the years. So perfect. All right, great. Well, I will All let right. you get back to your night, and uh, thanks for making the time. You're very welcome. Right. Look forward to uh, talking to you again. Okay, talk to you later. Okay. Bye. Bob Ferrier, a logger who's also in Rhode Island, is nothing if not diversified. In order to make it work in central Rhode Island, he runs a company that does logging, tree work, road work, and kiln-dyed firewood. He's been in the industry for 45 years and has had to weather some huge changes in his time. We're pretty diversified. We do a lot more than just logging. We don't do uh, a lot of logging, actually. I mean, we've got crews in the woods every day, 
but we uh, we do tree work, you know, tree removal, land clearing, and a huge part of our business is kiln dried firewood. Having said that, <clears throat> it's tough to fill that many seats. Um, you know, with, with qualified employees, you just can't find them. You find out a lot of times running in circles trying to wear too many hats, you know, for one person. <clears throat> you know, who's uh, who's the mechanic? Who's the who's the delivery driver today? Who's who's on the fellow bunch today? Who's on the skid today? It's just it's it's you never know. Uh, you just can't come up with enough qualified help. So you you, you try and try and grab new guys and and try and train them properly and and uh, after they're trained <laughs> they just end up going out on their own or trying to win. So it makes it tough. How many employees do you have? Not enough. Uh, right now I'm down to about eight. How do you manage the workers' comp? Because it's really high in Rhode Island, right? Like 50-something it, percent? It's ridiculous. <clears throat> yeah, it's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. You just have to, you just have to uh, do the numbers. You have to, you have to... Uh, I, I work differently than anybody else does. They everybody else works on production, where I work more on on quality and quantity. What do you mean so by I'll that? Do, I'll do better wood, less wood, for right? Money. Yeah. And then you've also got your firewood wing of your business going. Correct. Yeah, the, the kiln dried firewood is a, is a basically a three hundred sixty five day a year business. So is that kind of like your your volume, and then for the logging, you tend to be very selective about what you do. Well, we 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 harvest our own wood, so we right. have to we have to uh, produce the wood and you harvest the wood, produce the wood, so we can truck it back here and and uh, process it and produce kiln dry firewood out of it. Right, right, right. So right. I have to go in the woods to produce the wood, you know. What in the, what are you uh, mostly cutting in the way of saw logs? Well, mostly, you know, 90 percent oak or, or some saw too, but not much. Right. And and all you that's know, been hit pretty hard with the moth, right? <clears throat> yeah, gypsy moth and tent caterpillars really decimated the uh, huge population of uh, acreage. Yeah. In uh, in Rhode Island, Western Rhode Island. Do you feel like there is the ability to? you know, organize and when you have an issue like a bridge or or anything like that to get people together and say, hey, we're a, you know, important part of the supply chain here as loggers or I've been I I've been trying for a year and it's like pulling teeth. They're so independent. You know, all the loggers are so independent. It's hurry for me and and uh back with you, you know. It's uh it, it's a tough tough bunch of groups. I I've never seen anything like it. I mean obviously because it's not it's not a big timber state, obviously. Uh, however, there is some quality timber here. There's no markets. So, therefore, there's not a lot of loggers. All right. Thank thanks, you. Bob. Have a good night. Bye-bye. Bye. You too. Loggers are independent people, but having a strong community backbone is what makes the independence workable. In an industry that's known for its collaborative spirit, it can be frustrating when there's no one around in the same industry to have your back or perhaps on a more personal level, understand what you're up against. Everything from trucking to equipment repairs to community education to infrastructure problems uh, becomes more difficult when you don't have an organized workforce to handle some of the issues that come up on the job. 
But in the case of these three loggers, they assured me that they love what they do and where they do it. Thanks to our solo loggers for their words. Next, we have results from the Maine Logger Health and Safety Study. So just to start out, can you tell me a little bit about where you work and what the broader mission of, of uh, what you all's purpose is as an organization is? Sure. So we all work for what's called the Northeast Center for Occupational Safety and Health in Agriculture, Forestry, and Fishing. And we have the broader mission to improve the overall health and safety of workers in those industries by partnering with industry and stakeholders to, to improve productivity and the overall well-being of those workers. And so uh, part of why we're doing this interview now is that you all have been working for several years on a Maine logger health study, and uh, you finally have some results to share, which are going to be in our August magazine. So that's very yeah, exciting. Really about that. <laughs> so it is. <laughs> can you tell me just a little bit about the study and how it got started and what some of the goals of it have been? Yeah, absolutely. So we were really fortunate to get funding for this study several years ago. And what prompted the initial uh, idea is that nationally, the fatality rate for loggers is one of the highest fatality rates for civilian occupations in the U.S. Um, right now, it's about 24 times higher than the all-worker fatality rate. So clearly, that was something we wanted to pay attention to. So what we don't know is how does that fatality rate and the injury rate and the overall health of loggers vary across the country? Um, and how do things look in the Northeast and specifically in Maine compared to other places in the country? So that was sort of the impetus for us uh, starting this project. We all have a background in occupational health and safety and in research, but we really needed to partner with the industry to understand logging a bit better. Um, that's how we got started several years ago, and it's been quite the journey since then. So uh, what is actually conducting a, a study like this? What does that look like on a day-to-day -day basis? <laughs> it sometimes looks like us all running around like chickens with our heads cut off. Um, sometimes it involves us packing up and, and going out to the logging companies. Oftentimes we're behind our computers doing analysis of all of the surveys that everyone's been so great in responding to. So it's really a team effort and a lot of work in many different disciplines. So uh, if you're going to describe this study in kind of like phases, could you do that? Like what would be the first phase of like, you know, getting together and then like the second phase of like interviewing people or whatever it is, how, how would you describe it as a step-by-step -step process? Yeah, so the first phase, so we're really trying to learn about health and safety in the industry, and we're doing that through several different ways. So the first one is a series of surveys that folks are getting in, in many different ways, either through the mail or through a telephone call or a text message or through email. And that involves us reaching out to as many loggers as possible up in Maine. And through that first phase of the process, we've had almost 400 loggers uh, get involved in the project. The second phase is actually uh, conducting health screenings around the state, and that means that we have the opportunity to meet face-to-face -face with the loggers that are enrolled, and they get to take advantage of a full health screening, so a visit with a doctor, a hearing exam, getting their cholesterol and glucose checked, getting their vitals done, among a whole host of other things. 
Um, so we hope that that's a great service in of itself, but also that that information will be really valuable in us understanding what are the biggest health issues. So then at the end, once we have all of that information together, the third phase is working with the loggers and with industry to prioritize from those information, what should we really be tackling next? What's going to improve the productivity of the logging workforce? What do the loggers want to see as the next project? And then trying to make that, that work so we have some continuity in our, in our plans. Yeah, so, so where are you now? I mean, the, the, what, you've, uh, what you're gonna put in our magazine in August, you know, what does that present? Yeah, so that's the culmination of sort of the, the first initial survey that we've done. So that's information on, as I mentioned, nearly 400 loggers that have been really wonderful in working with us. And that's also the culmination of us trying to get the group as large as we can, and that's taken us about a year. Um, most folks when we started this project didn't know who we were, so we spent a lot of time getting to know folks and getting their name out there. And um, so this initial snapshot will, will be that initial survey. And it incorporates information about not only their healthcare and the safety on the work site, what type of safety plans there are, what type of personal protective equipment they use, how long they've been working, a lot of work history to understand, you know, their background. Um, we have a great mix of both conventional loggers. Over 20% of the group is conventional and over 70% are mechanized, with a few in there that are doing both kinds of logging. And it's kind of amazing because we have guys that are right out of high school that are just entering the workforce, and we have folks that have been working for almost 60 years in this group too. So it's a really wide uh, representation that we're getting. And we're also getting lots of different types of companies too, which is great. So the representation for company size is good. We've got solo operators, and then we've got companies ranging all the way up to companies with over 50 employees. So we feel good about, again, about how well represented the study is. So, so you must hear a lot of, you know, stories about people and their health and this and this line of work when you're out on the road. Um, mm -hmm. Would you feel comfortable, you know, just kind of sharing some of your impressions of of the folks that you're working with? I think our first impression is how hardworking they all are. Yeah. Um, yeah. One of the questions that we ask people is how, you know, how how long is your day? When do you start your work day? When do you end your work day? And how long your commute is? And um, we've been really amazed by uh, how many hours uh, people are working. You know, um, some some are getting up at you know three, two, two in the morning and finishing their day at at uh, six at night. You know, it's just amazing how hard people are working. I think you know some of what we learned is I think that the impression is that people love logging and are doing it because they love it so much. And although it can have, the industry has been known in the past to be dangerous, we see a lot of companies really emphasizing safety and trying to make it as good of a job as they possibly can. Um, so that's, that's been really wonderful. And we see the whole range of spectrum of the loggers that are involved in the study, from those that are you know, super healthy and, and really fit to those that maybe aren't quite as healthy and fit. So we do have a variety of, of folks. Um, 
as we say, represented. Um, I think we've gotten nothing but an incredibly warm welcome and, and appreciation when we've met folks in person at the health screenings, which has been fantastic. And it's been really wonderful getting to sit down with everybody involved and, you know, have a conversation with them while they're going through the health screening and really learn a little bit more about their lives and about their families and why they love what they do. Right. Well, so what are some, you know, issues in the industry that interfere with people being able to be, you know, as safe and as healthy as possible? Yeah. It's all those issues that are going to be incredibly difficult to uh, to change or to influence, but that nonetheless won't, won't stop us. As Leanne mentioned, that the guys, you know, they have such long work days, and that's really driven by the need for the industry and when you have to get wood out of the woods and get it to the mill. So I think just the nature of the work and the schedules is a real barrier to, to health. Um, we've heard guys say that, you know, of course I know I should be exercising or I know I should be eating better, but I just literally don't have the time. And by the time I get home from work, the last thing I want to do is go out for a walk or cook a really healthy dinner. Um, even just being able to buy healthy food when you're, you know, um, going out for work, you know, it seems to be another impediment. Um, you know, there are a lot of things that it's not for lack of information for the most part that we see. It's for the other barriers that are that are in in their lives. So that's going to be a challenge to uh, to deal with. Well, um, you know, is there anything that gives you optimism about uh, the situation? I would say so. I, I've been so impressed. We've met some loggers that have described their their meal prepping and, and all sorts of things that really, really surprised me and their real, um, you know, passion for, for healthy living. I think that people are often motivated by their families, and we've seen that it's their wives and their girlfriends or their kids that really, you know, they want to be active in, and be around for them as well. And I even see that the industry itself in terms of, you know, for the, some of the other bigger companies that they know that if their workers are healthier and happier, that they're going to have a better business overall. So we do see some emphasis on, you know, good health care or the work-life balance piece. And we're going to be learning more about that as time goes on and the study continues as well. Right. So at this point, you know, are there some, you know, kind of tools that you can recommend for people that might be listening and wondering, like, you know, what can I do? I work really long days and I don't have access to fresh food where I live and, you know, just these kind of like problems that a lot of people face in terms of trying to stay healthy. Um, what, what, where can they look and what can they do to like, you know, improve their uh, lifestyle and ability yeah. to stay healthy on the job? That's a really, that's a really good question. Um, I think we're going to be learning more about that as time goes on. I would also welcome those folks who have those thoughts on, you know, I have all these barriers to get in touch with us. Our contact information will be in, in the August issue. And we would love to learn a little bit more about that so we can brainstorm about how, how can we best help folks overcome some of the challenges. You know, I, I don't have the magic answer, and I, I don't think that we're going to have it right away, and it's not going to be us thinking about it on our own. Um, we're only going to be able to improve some of these factors, you know, with some real good sit-downs with loggers and brainstorming about what's going to be realistic 
for the industry. You know, it's one, it would be one thing to say, oh, yeah, we should have this, you know, health plan or you should exercise. But it, whatever comes out of this has to be realistic and has to work within the confines of, of the job and of the industry. I realize it's not the answer you may be looking for, but we're, no, we're no. realistic. I mean, that's a realistic <laughs> answer for sure. So um, uh, what was I going to ask you? Uh, oh, yeah. Are you still looking for people to become involved in the study or is that phase over? I think the our recruitment phase is, is over. Um, we will be uh, do, coming back up in the sp next spring for more health screenings. And if there are people who aren't enrolled in the study and want to do the health screenings, we would welcome them to, to do that. So, um, but as far as kind of actively taking part in the, um, in the surveys, I think we're currently full. Okay. <laughs> um, but we encourage anyone who's in the study to please continue to give us feedback because that's very, been very, very helpful. Yeah. And that's really the, that's going to be the, the very core of making this a successful study is participation from, from loggers. And I, I would say too is that, you know, that the solutions to whatever, um, you know, issues that we identify in the study, the solutions are definitely, as Erica said, they're with the loggers. They're the ones who know what the mm -hmm. solutions are. And, and I think the passion that the loggers that we've spoken with, their passion for their work I think we can get a hold of that and, and apply it to, to the issues that we find, I think we'll, we'll be successful. Yeah, for sure. And so uh, I just have another question just out of curiosity. So you all have worked across different you know, industries, right? Like you've worked with fisheries and in other parts of agriculture. And, and I'm curious, you know, how it's different to work with the logging industry than to work with farmers or, or lobster fishermen or whatever it might be? <laughs> well, at least for the, the difference between lobster fishermen is we're driving a lot farther inland. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, you know, it's funny, at least, in a, in, feel free to comment, Judy and Leanne, but I feel as though there are a lot of commonalities between the folks working in these industries. It's people that have the independence and the work ethic and the love of being outside and being your own boss um, that is, you know, any idea of going out on a crisp morning and having no one, you know, getting in your way or having just the forest at your feet, so to speak. So I see a lot of commonalities between the different industries that we work with. In the same vein, I see a lot of <laughs> our challenges researchers are that because of those in the independent streak, that we have to be really creative and we have to, you know, and how we, how we work with folks because we have to respect that they want to do things their own way and we need to work together to make things happen. Um, but it's one of my favorite, it is my favorite thing about our, our job is that we get to meet the loggers and the farmers and the commercial fishermen of the Northeast and, and appreciate what they do for us. Great, great. Well, uh, I am looking forward to having your, uh, you know, results of your studies so far in the in the magazine in August, and I think a lot of people will be curious to see what you're working on. So thank you for making time, and thanks for the work you do. 
It's very well. Thank you for the opportunity. (laughs) Appreciate the opportunity to share the information and the support of Northern Logger and Northeastern Loggers Association and spreading the word. And I would say to anybody listening that um, there'll there'll be certainly uh, those updates in the magazine, and they can also uh, Google at Maine Logger Health Safety Study and find us on the web for any additional updates. And even if they're not in the study, they can get in touch if they have ideas for what we should be doing next. I mean, that's that's how we'll learn. Cool. All right. If you would like to read more about solo logging or NEC's wide-reaching study, check out the August issue of the Northern Logger. If you don't have a subscription yet, we can help fix that at northernlogger.com. As always, we love to hear your questions, comments, and responses to our stories. So get in touch and email me at eileen at northernlogger.com. Thanks again. This has been the Northern Logger Podcast, and I'm your host, Eileen Townsend.